Sponsored by the NHI. You're listening to Begging the Question. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Begging the Question. Tonight's guest is Dr. Johan Saarfontein. He's a healthcare professional and external lecturer at Stellenbosch University. And tonight he's going to talk to both Siv and myself on the topic of immigration. Uh, welcome, Johan. And uh, can you tell us why exactly you want to leave South Africa? Look, it's probably something that's been floating around my head for a while. And, you know, I think um, if one looks at the current situation and what's happening at the Zondo Commission, I think that does explain a rather large portion of why one would want to consider leaving South Africa at this stage. And, and I mean, it's not an easy decision to make. Uh, you know, you are leaving a lot of people behind in the end, inevitably. But, you know, I don't think that at this stage, uh, South Africa has a, has a positive outlook. Um, it just doesn't appear like the, the policy trajectory is going to change suddenly into something that becomes positive um, for us in the long run. Um, and therefore, I, I started looking at getting my ducks in a row to, to get out of the country. And, you know, it, it might seem a bit pessimistic, but, you know, I think if you ask somebody from Zimbabwe in 1985 whether they thought Zimbabwe would be in a good place in 20 years, they probably would have said, yeah, yeah, you know, they, uh, they think it would, you know, and, and yet in 2005, Zimbabwe was in deep trouble, you know, and I, I kind of think that at this stage, you know, I, I don't feel particularly positive about where South Africa is going. And I think that uh, that kind of prompted the move a little bit to something where you've got a, a lot more uh, certainty in where the country's going, you know, it's got a positive future um, and, you know, policy certainty, very stable and those kind of things. So, you know, I thought all of that is quite important and that's not things one to getting in South Africa at the moment. Hmm. See, another another thing that I've, I've also heard from um, other people and also other, other uh, influential YouTubers and so on and so forth was that the majority of people immigrating from one country, whether it's the USA, South Africa, or Zimbabwe, or wherever, is because they're not getting the treatment that they feel they deserve from that specific country. And they become what I would call uh, capitalist or free market nomads, right? (laughs) They move where the base taxations of the individual or companies are for them. And they, um, how can I say, invest in those countries if the country's policies start to change, then they start looking for another place to, to move towards. Is that more or less um, in line with what you see also happening in South Africa? People are rather looking at countries that actually want to take care of, of the individual on the tax level yeah. and also look, on policy level. Yeah, look, I, I don't know necessarily whether a lot of people are leaving at the moment strictly for financial reasons. You know, I think there's there's a lot of socioeconomic reasons besides finances, which is which is prodding people to go. Personally, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be earning less in New Zealand than I'm earning locally here, you know, but there's, a, there's quite a bit of a difference in, in what you need to spend your money on, you know, because you don't need to pay for private uh, health care. You don't need to pay for private uh, security. Um, you don't need to send your kids to private schools or any of those kind of things. So, so for me, the, the choice was never really a financial one. You know, it, it was one of, of a question of um, 
you know, well, government finances, I guess, do play play a little bit of a role. Um, if you look at, at ours at the moment, you know, the government is spending exorbitant amounts of money on civil servants who are not really doing all that much. And, uh, you know, and then now we're also looking at a, at a basic income grant, um, you know, and the fact that a basic income grant is required, I think that's what's the big concerning thing, because the economy is not growing, you're not creating jobs, um, and we're busy turning into a bit of a welfare state, you know, and that is not... Um, you know, although New Zealand itself is also a bit of a socialist country, you know, you find that, you know, it's got a four four and a half percent unemployment rate even now after COVID. And, you know, um, and yet so so you've got a lot of taxpayers and and, you know, then you get free services as a result of that need services you can use. You know, this side one really doesn't want to use the, the government healthcare system. Uh, the police are dodgy at best. Um, so. You know, so that, those are the kind of things, you know, but there are people that immigrate for financial reasons as well. And they normally end up, you know, in places like Portugal and those kind of places. But not a lot of people move to New Zealand for financial reasons. Um, it is a, a fairly expensive country to live in. Um, a lot of equality there from an income point of view, you know, so you're unlikely to be, be earning a, a whole big chunk of money. You'll probably be earning in line, line with more or less everybody else. So, so that's definitely not the, the main motivation for this um, but there are other places where where people with with really big money end up going you know and and you know i mean cyprus is usually one of those you can get a, a european passport in cyprus if you invest two million euros there so if people have a lot of money that's normally what they do or you can go to portugal you know you can invest half a million euros in property mm -hmm. there and you get citizenship as well eventually so yeah so there's definitely other kind of places where people with with financial in, in interests in in leaving goes um, new zealand's not really one of those okay so from what i can understand then is um in regards to new zealand would you would you then say that that new zealand government specifically new zealand government do you do you think that they are more transparent with the way of their finances than it's say south africa is Oh, definitely. You know, I, I think, you know, the, the fact that corruption and those kind of things are, are clamped down immediately, you know, there's, there's no half measures when it comes to dealing with corruption. Um, I know towards the end of last year, there was one of the cabinet members that, that had an affair with somebody and he, he was forced to resign by his party, you know, now, I mean, that's in our world, yeah, that's a relatively minor transgression. But, you know, over there, it's a big deal for them because they can't be seen to to have people with, with questionable moral character sitting in parliament. So, you know, the guy was, he was kicked out basically for, for something which we on this side, you know, I mean, it happens every day and it's in parliament, you know, and it's just kind of like a minor deal. Mm -hmm. So definitely, you know, they, they, they have a zero tolerance policy for, for those kind of things, you know, and I think that's very important because if you clamp down on the small things, you know, it, it stops the big things from happening. And, and of course, you know, their, their justice system is very, very functional. So if they do pick up on anything, you know, people go to jail quite quickly. So, you know, it's not like here where you've got 15 years um, since the arms deal process started. You know, and, and some people are still walking around without any questions asked, really, you know, so... So I think, you know, that's the difference in, in their approach is that, you know, they, they don't tolerate these things at any level, you know, and, and, and over here, it's almost, um, you know, it's almost part and parcel of the package, you know, that, that if you're deployed to a position, it's almost expected that you need to then have a patronage network that you, that you uh, serve in that, in that position.
Mm. Yeah. So, any questions from your side? Yeah, I think on the on the subject of New Zealand, and I don't want to get bogged down in a, in a COVID discussion, mm. but they've got the, the sort of the fiscal accountability. But I would say the handling of, of lockdown has become, I don't know, a bit dystopian in some senses, you know, where they only had, you know, one or two cases locked down the entire country. And, you know, um, Jacinda Arden's messages <laughs> of, of how you will be, um, if you don't want to be tested, you'll be locked up and stuff. So in, in, in obviously in the, um, in the general terms of better opportunities, I understand the move, but I'm wondering, does that sort of authoritarian streak give you pause for thought at all? Um, look, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a person that, that generally, I, I don't have a problem with authority. So, you know, I've, I've always been like that. So, you know, something like that doesn't really concern me too much. You know, I, I tend to kind of stick to the rules in, in general. So, so, you know, it, it's not something that I would find, extremely strange or anything like that um you know i know the locals in new zealand are, are a little bit unhappy about some of the latest lockdowns that there were now but but in general you know the management of the whole situation has been quite good and and of course personally i'm not going to end up in auckland so so normally what happens there is also is is, is uh, that the, the cases end up coming in through auckland usually you know and then auckland gets the brunt of the lockdown so i'm going to be in, in palmerston north which is about an hour and a half north of Wellington. Um, and the rest of the country is normally on sort of a level level one, perhaps a level two, um, when, when Auckland, you know, kind of goes up to level three or so, and that starts really impacting on, on uh, what you can do and things like that. So, you know, for me, um, I'm not too concerned about that. You know, at least they have a plan. Um, you know, I mean, they've already procured enough vaccines to... Uh, vaccinate the entire country's population. They've already started, you know, um, they've only got 5 million people there, you know, so it's not as big a task as we've got going here, you know, but they've got a proper formal plan, you know, they've started with the with the border workers over there vaccination wise, which makes perfect sense because they're the people that are exposed over there, everybody sort of outside of the border facing situation, you know, they, there's no COVID in the rest of the country. So it makes it very easy to see who to start with. And um, by the look of things, they'll start rolling out uh, to the rest of the population by about July. Um, and I mean, the other thing is that they had the luxury of, of sitting back a little bit to see which vaccines look like they're the most effective, you know, and, and the safest. So, so they didn't have to rush uh, to buy whatever they could find. And, and from the look of things, you know, the, um, the current uh, the current vaccine uh, that they were, the AstraZeneca one, you know, seems to be picking up some problems in, in Europe now, you know, and I mean, that that mm -hmm. was what we would have had. And, and perhaps it was a, a blessing in the skies that it, it wasn't <laughs> effective against the South African strain, <laughs> because it, it seems like, you know, the, the, the very healthcare workers that, that the health system depends on would have been the first people to be vaccinated with a vaccine that turns out to perhaps not be quite, quite as safe as everybody thought. So, mm -hmm. so yes, but, you know, for me personally, um, uh, yeah, I don't have a problem with the authoritarian approach as, as much, um, you know, uh, at least it's a, it's a reasonable authoritarian approach, you know, it's not like over here where cigarettes and booze are banned and, and one has to really question why, why that happened, because, I mean, it just created this massive black market for these things, um, you know, uh, so, 
Um, so, you know, it seems like it, it's reasonable and logical what's happening there. And I think that's for me also appealing, you know, because, uh, you know, governments that just make rules for the sake of it, you know, the whole closing the beach, but you can walk on the boardwalk and, you know, uh, the closing of parks, but everybody can go walk around in the mall. You know, some of those things are, are, are really quite questionable, um, you know, because it, you would be a lot safer if you were walking around in a park than you are in a mall, you know, and yet the park is closed and the mall is open. So, um, you know, so those kind of things just, just rationally don't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So from, from what I can understand then is your move is basically not economical, but more or less to do with government efficiency and competence. Have I got that right? Yeah, that I think is definitely a big part of it. You know, I, I think I, I want to go to a system that works, you know, a system that looks after its citizens. And over here, I mean, you've got a very, very small tax base. It's got to pay for everything. And, and basically, most the majority of taxpayers don't really get much for their taxes. You know, mm -hmm. besides your taxes, you still need to pay for private security, private schooling, private health care. And, you know, so one starts to question, you know, why, why are you paying all these taxes if you still have to pay for all of these other things also, you know, and, and over there, you pay your taxes and you get things for it. You get proper free schooling, you get proper free healthcare. Uh, the police do a wonderful job and, and they've got quite a, quite a large kind of police to, to citizen ratio as well, you know, so they've got a lot of police persons. They're not generally even armed. But they're there, you know. So mm. um, that's the kind of that's the kind of civilization I personally want to live in, you know, where where police don't shoot innocent bystanders when they're walking out of the doctor's office, you know. Those kind of things mm. is is what mm. won't be happening there. Um, and for me, you know, that 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 sounds like the kind of place where where I I think I would fit in. Mm. I'm still trying to swallow the reasonable authoritarian part. Um, it's it's <laughs> it's. I don't know how I can how, how I can consolidate the two two aspects because, um, as as you as you probably know, Siv and I are very individualistic and and we look at absolute freedoms for the individual versus that of the government, and mm. you know where these two seem to clash, we always take the part of the individual or at least we try to as far as reasonably possible and when when i hear for example reasonable authoritarianism i go "Ooh, i don't know i don't know um yeah that's a, that's a bit of a i'll chew on that but maybe you can probably give us some examples of reasonable authoritarianism if you want to call it that Look, I think it, it's a personal choice as well, you know, so, so for me, um, you know, I'm probably, and that's why, I, you know, I, I think I, I had some disagreements with people during the regional lockdown as well, you know, is that they were very focused on civil liberties, you know, and being able to move around and things and with a medical background, you know, I could, I could see what the point was of the original lockdown in the, you know, in the sense of trying to prep the healthcare system and those kind of things. So it made sense to me. Um, so initially, for instance, that would have probably been a fairly reasonable authoritarianism on a local point of view was the, was the original start of the lockdown, you know, when there was a bit of a plan of fixing, getting the healthcare system prepared and those kind of things. 
Um, so initially that was good. You know, obviously it, it went pear-shaped from there because the healthcare system wasn't actually ever prepared after that. And, you know, it was still, uh, it, 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 it's still not. So, um, yeah. so yes, you know, but that, that, you know, yeah, we're still waiting for the healthcare sure. system to prep. Perhaps by wave 15, you know, we'll get to, we'll get to a point where the healthcare <laughs> system can cope with it. Um, but, you know, so, so in New Zealand, I, I feel like, you know, um, I mean, if you look at things like, uh, you know, the, the traffic laws, for instance, you know, they've got a point system going on their, on their uh, driver's license cards, you know. So if you, if you start getting traffic fines, uh, eventually you lose your license as a result of that, you know. So they, so they implement that and they implement it effectively because it's not a situation of a policeman trying to fine you so that they can elicit a bribe from you, you know. They, they fine you because they, they, they feel it's their duty, you know, and, you know, they really want to get you to, to learn from the experience almost, you know, over here it's, you get fined because it's almost like people are trying to elicit bribes out of you. You know, yeah. that's what it seems like. Um, so those kind of things, you know, the kind of highway speeds there, you know, it's a hundred kilometers an hour. So it's not like, here it's 120. And if you look at the annual road deaths there, um, you know, you, you find that they've probably got about 90 people, 90 people a year that die on the roads, you know? So, um, compared to what we've got going on here in, in over here locally we always hear about the road diffs during the during april and during december you know when everybody's traveling on vacations and then they speak about 1200 people a month dying in those two months what they don't tell you is that every other month in south africa 1200 people die on the roads anyway mm -hmm. so if you take into consideration how many more people are on the roads in april and december then it's actually not doing too badly um but you know so th those kind of things so so they, they've got a hundred kilometer an hour speed limit. So yes, it takes you forever to get anywhere when, you, when you're traveling on the long roads, but you know, it, it, it creates a bit of a safer environment, you know, and, and over here, you know, I mean, even though taxis have got a hundred kilometer an hour limit, they simply, they simply, you know, don't keep with it. You know, they go as fast as they can until things start falling apart. And that's the speed they go. Literally. So over there, yeah. And over there also, you know, when they've got things like Easter long weekend, you know, they, they've got the police out in force and they, you know, if in those periods, if you do a one kilometer over the speed limit, they'll find you because they see the roads as being busy and they see proper enforcement of the speed limit as a way to protect the people. Mm. Um, you know, and so, so for me, you know, those are kind of reasonable type of things. Um, over here, I, I don't see a lot of that happening. You know, I mean, one only has to look at all these ridiculous lockdown regulations that were brought up to, to realize that you know, there's nothing logical about what's always happening here. Um, you know, and, and the fact is that, you know, it almost looks like people that, that don't pay their TV licenses almost, uh, you know, get the harsher sentences than, than people that or involved in spousal abuse or things like that, you know, so, so we've got a very, very strange way of applying the law in South Africa. And, and, you know, for me, um, you, you know, I, I generally try and keep within the law. And, and so for me, that kind of, uh, the author, that very harsh authoritarian approach doesn't really bother me as much, but perhaps it's a personal thing, you know, perhaps New Zealand won't work for you. <laughs> So if, if you ever want to leave, perhaps New Zealand's not the option. And I think Australia is even worse. You know, I think a lot of people say Australia is a very, very bad nanny state. Um, and yeah, that is definitely the case over there. They've got some interesting things that they tend to apply. Um, mm. but, but for me, New Zealand, um, it, it seems like a, you know, it, it, it seems like a good fit for me from sort of my 
cultural perspective about how I feel about, uh, you know, individual liberty versus um, what law abidance and things like that. So for me, you know, it's a personal choice. Mm. Perhaps for you, it might not quite work as well. Yeah. See, the, this is where well, it gets um, interesting. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, I think I think for I think for us, I think it's not really a case of strict laws. Um, I think the thing that bothered us with the lockdown was the fluidity of laws. Mm. So it's 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 fine it's fine if the if you uh, if you know that the speed limit is one hundred kilometers an hour. I think the problem that Dodge and I had most of all was that on a Sunday night the speed limit would go to eighty, and the next Sunday it would go to one forty. Yes, yes, <laughs> and that was the biggest and, and, part. Yeah, yeah, but but I also just wanted to point it out. I think uh, I think maybe a key takeaway for me from that section was that uh, essays incompetence did us a favor um, with with the vaccines, and New Zealand's authoritarianism did them them a favor in terms of the vaccines. I think that was a very interesting point. Yeah, no, look, it it definitely is, and you know, I think what what one has to realize, for instance, when it comes to vaccines in South Africa, is that thirty four percent of our population are under eighteen. Now, the current vaccines can't be administered to, to, to people under 18, um, you know, so, so that means that if one wants to get to herd immunity in South Africa, you have to vaccinate 100% of the rest of the population to do that. So, you know, that's a, that's a big ask, you know, I mean, you, you've got to basically vaccinate everybody and you've got to do it in a short enough time that it actually, that it actually matters. Mm. And that's not to say that the, that the children that you don't vaccinate can't, um, can't actually, uh, um, you know, be uh, transmit the disease, you know. So, so it, it doesn't help if you've got the adult population under control and and children are not necessarily, you know. So that they can be carriers, especially your teenagers and things. So, so it it becomes problematic to see at which point South Africa is going to reach herd immunity, um, you know, if one has to rely on vaccines. And and I'm concerned that eventually one will get to a situation where. Um, you would have to get your vaccine every six months from the corner pharmacy, especially if you want to travel overseas and they start making um, uh, vaccine passports a requirement for traveling, you know, um, then one hopes that you will have the option of going to the corner pharmacy and getting a vaccine. But if you've got to rely on the government, you know, it, it seems that you, you may not get your vaccine and, you know, then it might mean that you're not able to travel either internationally. Um, so, you know, for me, it's, it's very concerning is that it doesn't appear that we've got a nice cohesive plan about how are we going to implement and even now with, with healthcare workers, you know, and I mean, there's a lot of people doing a lot of hard work behind the scenes on, on getting vaccines in here and getting them distributed. But, you know, the, the private sector guys that are involved in that can only do so much. And then you've got to rely on the government who's busy purchasing the vaccines. So, you know, there are concerns with that, you know, and, and it's going very slowly. And the question is, how do you, how do you effectively ramp it up to get it to, to everyone in the country? Um, you know, if you're already struggling a little bit just now with the, with the healthcare professionals themselves that need to be vaccinated. Mm. So I'm, I'm a bit concerned about the, the aspect of, of trying to reach herd immunity in South Africa. And I think, you know, it also, one doesn't quite know whether, how long are the vaccines going to make you immune, you know, um, which means that, you know, if uh, I heard yesterday some anecdotal evidence of pharmacists that tested people for um, antibodies after they tested positive, you know, and so they did weekly tests on them to see how long, how long they could pick up antibodies. And three months later, they didn't have, couldn't pick up antibodies on the tests anymore. 
Now, you know, that's a bit of a concern because does that mean that you're no longer immune to the virus? Um, and then, of course, with all these new strains developing, um, one, could, one could be vaccinating people and halfway through there's a new strain that develops that even the ones that are vaccinated are not necessarily immune against. So, so there's a lot of questions and that's why you need to have an have a approach where you can get a large enough portion of the population vaccinated in a short enough time. And that is that is what South Africa doesn't seem to be able to manage it or going to be managing anytime soon, especially looking at the availability of vaccines and now also the availability of the actual syringes that you need to use to vaccinate with, because everybody was focusing on the vaccines and that now suddenly we've got a syringe shortage. So it's, you know, it's, it's just interesting how these things crop up. Drink it. Just drink the vaccine. That's that's my only <laughs> advice. <laughs> Don't take my advice as medical advice, guys. Uh, I'm not a medical <laughs> practitioner. I'm not a medical uh, professional or anything like that. I'm just a guy with a high school diploma. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, well, you could you, you could you could powderize it and drop it off at nightclubs and four ways, and most oh, of Joburg would be oh. <laughs> would be vaccinated oh, no. by, by the end of Friday night. <laughs> I think perhaps the African potato needs to make a comeback, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Madagascan drink. Yeah. yeah, that one, yes. Yes. Yeah. But you see, we're coming back to to a government system that seems to work. And, you know, for some people, like you pointed out, it's not necessarily financial and it's not necessarily you know, in the case of Sivan myself, where we might find ourselves with maximal um, individual freedoms. It might also be because of security reasons. And that's something that I've also noticed a lot with, with people moving, especially to Australia and New Zealand. I've got friends and family that moved over there, specifically for the, for the as we would call them, the nanny states, right? Because they, they seem to be capable of giving security to these people, a, a sense of security, I would say. Um, because in a pandemic honestly, you, you know, eventually, like you pointed out, you'll have to try and get to a herd immunity. And there's only so much that a government can do. The rest should be up to the individual. Um, yeah, the, the other point that I want to raise is it also seems like there's some sort of general agreement between the individuals in New Zealand and probably in Australia to some extent for the greater good, right? They, they seem to understand why their rights would be limited. In South Africa, because of the fluidity, there are problems with accepting that, which then can cause later down the line a lot more problems than it can give solutions. Is that basically more or less correct, my, yeah, my assessment um, of that? Yeah, I, I think starting with the with the security issue, you know, I, I think all of us realize at this stage that we've got a major crime problem in South Africa. And I think that the fact that, you know, a, a lot of additional people have lost their jobs during lockdown is only going to add to the crime problem, unfortunately, because you've got just so many more people that, that are struggling to make an income and starting to look at what else they can do, whatever that may be to earn a living, you know. And that's the kind of thing, unfortunately, crime pays in South Africa. You know, it doesn't necessarily pay a lot, but the victims, you know, it costs them a lot, you know, because people will be killed for a cell phone or something like that. It just seems like the value of human life is a bit skewed in South Africa. People will get killed for the, you know, smallest thing, you know. Um, 
so that I think is the big concern. And that is something that is totally outside of one's control. You know, I mean, I can, I can try and make my, my house as safe as it, as it can be, you know, with extra measures and things. But if you're going around the corner, you know, you, you, don't, you don't have control of what happens at the traffic light, you know, mm-hmm. so, so that is, that I think is a big concern. And, and yes, in New Zealand and Australia, you know, you have a lot less, less of that, you know, I think, um, I've got a friend that that moved over in December, and they uh, in December they went to watch a, a cricket test in Christchurch, um, and when they got home, they saw that they actually forgot their garage door open, you know, <laughs> and yet everything everything was in the garage, you know. So, so uh, I mean, if you leave your garage door open, yeah, well, you out of your house for five hours, you will probably lose everything and have a family of squatters living in there when you come back. Um, so. <laughs> So for me, uh, you know, that, that is definitely a, a big aspect. Um, and the second one is on, on the freedoms, you know, definitely New Zealand has, a, has quite a big approach of, you know, the, they speak of the team of 5 million, you know, and, and they really have a lot of cohesion in, in trying to eradicate um, the virus. And I think, you know, because they're a smaller population also than we are, it's, it's a little bit easier to do uh, and being an island, of course. So, so that definitely helps uh, because you've got a lot fewer ports of entry and things like that. You know, in our case, we've got the entire Zimbabwe border fence that is mm-hmm. just like a sieve, you know, and um, everybody is just leaking in there um, to look for a better life in South Africa. And I think, you know, in, in the, the whole lockdown concept is it, very difficult to do in South Africa because, you know, such a large portion of the population live in, in squalid conditions. You know, they've got a lot of people have single room shacks or small single room houses, RDP houses, you know, one cannot realistically expect somebody to sit in a, in a place like that for any extended period of time and, and expect them to be happy with it, you know? So, mm-hmm. and the moment you've got one part of the population that starts saying, listen, you know, this lockdown nonsense doesn't work for me and everybody starts walking around outside, the other part of the population says, well, if they, if they can do it, why can't we do it? You know, and then you've got a general breakdown of the whole thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and of course, I think that you still have a, a, a issue that, you know, sort of something like the taxi industry, you know, had, had way too much power in the way that they, they, they dealt with government and the way that, uh, you know, sort of uh, how many people they can have in a taxi and things like that. And, and I mean, taxis turn out into super spreaders. Because if you drive past any taxi, you'll see people are wearing masks in there, but almost none of them have them across their noses and, and things like that. So you might as well not wear a mask then. You're in an enclosed space. It was in the winter as well. So everybody's windows were closed because it's just too blooming cold to have the windows open like you're supposed to. So you create these little miniature breeding grounds for, for the virus and little super spreader events. And then you've got somebody getting in and somebody getting out, you know, so you've got a a nice flux in the population as well. So, you know, those kind of things contribute quite a lot to, to, to spreading the virus. And then especially in the, in, in the black communities that, that end up using the taxis quite a lot, you know, that you've, you've got this big, you know, these little super spreaders that transport them everywhere, you know, and I think you and me that have got our own cars, you know, we, we relatively, uh, you know, you're relatively can, able to control your circumstances, but when you're in those circumstances, you've got absolutely no control, you know, and, it makes it it makes it very difficult. So, you know, we in South Africa, I think we've we've only got a real sensation of cohesiveness when the rugby World Cup final is on and we're playing in it. You know? <laughs> then everybody everybody will kind of cheer together um, at that point, you know. But the rest of the time, unfortunately, we're quite a diverse population. 
And I think we're, we're in a situation where, where people don't really care for each other all that much. And, mm. and it's a problem, you know, and, and I get the idea in New Zealand, you know, there's a real sense of community, you know, people look after each other. Um, in South Africa, it's, it's difficult, you know, because uh, some people are really in bad shape and, you know, the, the people that can help, you know, can only help so much. So it, it, you can't help everybody, unfortunately. And that's, you know, creates a, a bit of a problem. Um, and I mean, you only had to look at what's happening at the traffic lights of, of late, you know, I mean, every traffic light's got a couple of people standing there begging, you know, so that's definitely getting worse. And ultimately, with, with a lot of uh, the private sector jobs, you know, people taking pay cuts, people losing their jobs, you know, you find that people don't, don't have the, they might still be compassionate, but they simply don't have the means to help other people out anymore like they did before. So, mm. so that's got an effect on the population as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it was a, a difficult time for everybody. And, and I think practically, you know, having a lockdown in, in a poor suburb in South Africa is, is really very, very dangerous to do. And I think it's quite surprising that, that our death rates are as low as they are. And I think, you know, anecdotally, things like the, the uh, TB vaccine that people get when they're young, you know, the BCG vaccine, that might well have helped us all, you know. Um, mm. they, they did some research in Germany that shows that the people that were in East Germany back in the day, they still got the BCG vaccine and, and they did a lot better than, than the ones in West Germany. So, you know, so perhaps there's these kind of things that did, did help us along, you know. Um, but, you know, for, for people that are in really bad financial shape, um, you know, to, to not really see as big an effect of the, of the virus in, in their community by, by people passing away or people getting really sick, um, you know, makes them wonder why, why, why do they need to bother to social distance? Why do they need to bother with staying in their house? Mm -hmm. um, because of that absence of, of a sense of community, I think. And, and that is um, something that's definitely in New Zealand quite, quite a big thing. The, the other thing that I've, I've noticed is that we've, we've applied a blanket sort of lockdown, right? Uh, never mind the ludicrous laws like the banning of alcohol and cigarettes because of Azol or whatever Damini Zuma wants to, <laughs> wants to put out there. Um, but we, we always hear about, let's say, for example, going a bit off topic, I think, but about these decolonization efforts, right? But then when the lockdown started, it was as if we took a European solution and applied it to an African country. And like you pointed out, it wouldn't have worked um, very well in the first place to, to begin with because of your informal settlements, right? Um, there's very little to almost no flowing water. There might be one communal um, toilet for, let's say, 20 or even more houses, right? And then you've got these shacks basically against one another with a 10 meter by 10 meter um, little lot that's allocated to these people. So you don't really have that, that sort of control as maybe let's say somewhere in New Zealand, right? Where that might not be as prevalent as it is here in South Africa, right? So you can actually say that um, economic disparity sort of also contributes to uh, communal cohesiveness in, in a sense. Um, and I think that's what we're witnessing in, in a lot of other more well-off countries, right? Um, 
except maybe the the US, but that's that's debatable. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, well, I think I think um, I think what's interesting is that you know if you if you look at New Zealand, it is basically a social justice warrior utopia, in the sense that um, that sense of cohesion that Johannes talking about is is deep. Mm. Um, there there was never there was never really a situation where um, across racial lines people were against each other mm. and the 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 amount of charity that New Zealand does the amount of social services that it provides um, I think goes a long way to um, plugging up that social cohesion but I think in South Africa you've got this villainization of the very people that make social justice possible, right? So uh, if you look at the villainization of white people and basically anybody who could be considered bourgeois, you know, anybody that falls in the sliding scale tax bracket, whether it's a, a business or a corporation or, or a taxpayer, um, you know, there's, there's this feeling that Everybody, everybody that's doing okay is on one side. Everybody that's not doing okay is on the other side, and um, I think the, I think everybody is just sort of frustrated with the other party. Mm -hmm. um, the grantees seem to think that when the ANC installs a tap, that they should be thanked, when in fact it's the taxpayer that should be thanked. I think I think that gratitude is misplaced. Mm -hmm. And those who could possibly contribute more than just their tax base were getting a bit cut for, you know. Mm -hmm. um, we know what happened in Zimbabwe. And, and I think, I think this, this brings up an interesting question for me around immigration is that you can, you can almost see immigration or you could see immigration as a political tool. Mm -hmm. um, so if you see what happened in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe collapsed. Now it's collapsed. And at least to some degree, they're looking back at that whole episode and saying, geez, maybe, uh, maybe we didn't do the right thing there. That didn't really work out the way that we thought it was going to work. And there's this idea, um, I, th I certainly have it, that you could use immigration as a political tool. Um, basically, you retreat to a safe distance and you say, well, this is the South Africa that you wanted. We're not in it anymore. How's that working out for you? And then perhaps you're in a place to, you know, negotiate a, a settled return, if we can put it that way. I'm wondering, Johan, does, does, does that sort of scenario creep up in the back of your mind? Do you think maybe you'll go to New Zealand and you'll always sort of be looking here and see how it goes? Maybe <laughs> we're appreciated again. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's difficult to say. You know, I, I think, um, you know, looking, looking back, um, you know, one of the reasons also that is quite nice in New Zealand is that, you know, once you're there you, for long enough, you're also entitled to a state pension, which is, is quite a quite a large amount of money that you get from the government there as, as retirement benefits. You know, that's on top of your kind of own top ups of that. And that for me, you know, does does create a um, it's definitely something that kind of inspires you to, to stay there in the long term, because if you do end up coming back, you know, the sort of retirement savings you need to start putting together then in a shorter time to equal the amount of money you would be getting from government there. You know, that that makes it, you know, it makes you think twice about possibly coming back. And for me personally, you know, uh, this is a, a fairly permanent move, you know, because 
also if if you had to come back um you know you're sort of sitting in a situation as a as a white male looking for a, a senior management position it's not something that that's easy to find anymore you know um so it's 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 a tough work environment out out there um you know be it definitely has an effect on 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 employability um so for me you know that that is a problem if if i ever wanted to come back is is it's I'm going to be an, an old white male looking for work and, and it can be problematic to, to find something like that. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure for me personally that it, it might be something like that, you know, I think, uh, and also, you know, having, having now gone through the process, uh, you know, packing up your life, um, all of that, uh, you know, it, it's a big, it's quite a big process, you know, so I, perhaps it's just a mental thing, but I'm definitely not going there to, to have a look and see when I can come back. You know, for me, it's a fairly permanent move um, for a number of reasons. And, and you know, I, I don't unfortunately think that I'm going to be, be looking back and saying in five years time, no, you know, I think things are looking a bit better. Let me come back. Um, it's really, it's really a permanent thing. Um, I think, you know, there was at a stage where there were a lot of South Africans that immigrated that were coming back um, you know, uh, sort of 2007, eight thereabouts, because we uh, managed the that whole uh, 2008 housing collapse in the US. We we managed quite well in South Africa, you mm. know. So we were relatively in good shape, and I think a lot of people at that stage were kind of coming back. And then uh, we we entered the Jacob Zuma era, which then unfortunately <laughs> was uh, was not uh, particularly good for the country, but. You know, at this stage, I think it it would take a, a lot of guts to to say, listen, in five years' time, I think I'm going to come back. You know, because it's it, it's really takes a lot of a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of mind shift to 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 make the move. You know, and and for me, I don't think it's a question of sitting there and watching. And unfortunately, I think it is a it is a bit of a political statement because I, I think a lot of taxpayers in this country, um, I think it's one of the few countries in the world, probably the only one in the world where the majority of taxpayers didn't vote for the government that's spending their taxes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that um, what, what the government might not necessarily realize is, is the fact that every immigrant that leaves takes their taxes with them, you know, so your tax base is slowly eroding. And especially when it comes to healthcare practitioners, you know, you can't replace a healthcare practitioner one if they leave with their taxes it's it's not like a in a in a in another co corporate where you know somebody on a lower level then gets promoted and somebody gets promoted and in the end your tax loss is is kind of at the at the bottom level almost um, you know but it it's 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 not as big an effect with healthcare practitioners that that leave the country you know they don't get replaced so besides the services that they were rendering that are now missing it's also their taxes don't get replaced and that is a that's a big thing. And I mean, if you look at the kind of top tax bracket in South Africa, it doesn't have a lot of people in there. You know, you've got about two hundred thousand people in that top stack bracket that pays sixty seven percent of the personal income taxes. Mm. You can imagine if if twenty thousand of them leave, you know, what it does to your tax income and on a government level. And you know, looking at the figures, that is about what he's leaving at the moment. And mostly the people that that are leaving are sort of in your top two or three tax brackets. Because it, unfortunately, it costs, costs a bit of money to leave the country. So you find that your tax base slowly gets smaller and smaller and it gets eroded. Um, and fewer people need to, to keep paying the taxes that keep every, everything else afloat. And, and I th unfortunately, the government policies do not currently look 
like they're going to be having the radical change that's required to turn the economy around and get it going again. You know, we, we keep doing the same thing and expecting different results almost. Mm. And you, you've got, you know, and then you've got to throw in something like the, the, the now the fee protests uh, with the students. Um, you know, I mean, there's a, a, a huge sense of entitlement that, that people are saying, listen, I'm entitled to have my tertiary studies funded for free. You know, that's like an expectation now. And, and that's very concerning because, and, and when you, it boils right down to it, it's a terrible investment because even, you know, historically it's always been, you know, that about 20% of first years actually end up making it and getting their degrees. So if you're mm -hmm. funding a hundred percent of first years for their studies, you know, only 20% of that actually turns into a graduate, you know, the mm -hmm. rest is money you're basically chucking down the drain. So um, so I think the students themselves are quite happy to have that because now suddenly they've they've got they've got housing they've got food you know they can study and whatnot um, for as long as that lasts and then you find that they don't pass and then what now they want the, the historical debt written off so they can carry on but you know it's it's not a good investment and yeah. and somebody um, a market analyst said it the other day that that is not a it's not a a good way to spend money from a social point of view, because a, a, a degree is very much to the to the benefit of the individual that gets the degree, and not towards the society that is paying for him to get that degree. Um, and you know, and that that's unfortunately now a problem that was created. Now it's there. We we're not going to get rid of this ever again. Um, but you know, it's not a good investment of money. It's actually quite an interesting, interesting point. Uh, I need to actually remember that. But something that I that I that I've read, and I think it was, I, I think I told Siv this in in the past. It was from Saint John Chrysostom that said that welfare is based on two things: gratitude and willingness. Right. So it has to be the willing giving action of an individual to another individual. And that other individual has to display a form of gratitude, right? And you've, you've pointed something out very, very interesting with this whole fees movement thing, the entitlement aspect. And he also warned against that. He said that if the king or the government in this case were to send the soldiers to confiscate all the wealth of the people that had wealth to redistribute it to the poor people, it would become a thing of entitlement for the poor and resentment from the rich to the poor. And I think that's what we're seeing currently as well, which mm. would again, push that drive for immigration, right? Because they, they, the people are starting to, to resent the system that they, that they are in because they feel like they have, first of all, they have no say. Taxation, regardless of the tax bracket, whether you're in the lower tax bracket or at the highest tax bracket, it's involuntary. Right. You don't have a say in how much tax you want to pay and what kind of programs you want to support. So already there, it's just entitlement from the establishment to take what they perceive as rightfully theirs. And you did not willingly agree to that. This is what we're seeing now you know, in, in corruption and especially the Zondo Commission. You see that the politicians, they just, they just have this idea of, well, I'm entitled to it because apartheid or because whatever reason you can think of, right? And then also your econo economic policies. I'm, I'm glad you touched on that. Um, one of the economic policies, like you pointed out, broad-based economic empowerment, 
is, at least in my view of things, an extreme barrier to the economic growth of this country. Uh, I know some people might disagree with that, but they have to prove the contrary. Because currently what we're seeing is the exact result of that, right? Um, And I think the biggest concern there is that it's not actually broad-based. Had it been broad-based, you might find that it would have worked better. But the fact is you've got a small political elite that's busy that's busy getting rich off broad-based black economic empowerment. So yeah, it, it's based. actually narrow. It, yeah. yeah, it's quite narrow-based economic yeah. empowerment. Actually. Well, it's broad-based for their finances, you know, for these elite political... <laughs> yeah. It's incredibly broad. <laughs> yeah. So in that sense, you can't argue against the broad-based black economic empowerment. But what, what's surprising for me is uh, it's, it's this mentality that I think, like, like you pointed out, this sense of entitlement And I think this is the main driving force, right, behind immigration. I might be wrong, but this is what I can see so far. Yeah, and and I think, you know, if if one looks, for instance, at something like healthcare at the moment, you know, there was also, there's an expectation that was created by the ANC at the 2007 conference and and 2010, they came out of an NHI green paper, and that created that sense of entitlement of, free healthcare for all, you know, without having to pay for it. But the, the fact is somebody's got to pay for it. And and the policy uncertainty around NHI at the moment is actually causing a lot of healthcare professionals to leave the country because, um, you know, as the policy stands at the moment, we're 10 years down the line, you know, there's, there's still nothing written in there that tells a healthcare professional, if I render services to a patient outside of a hospital environment, how am I going to get paid for these services? Things like that are just missing from the policy at the moment. And that uncertainty is causing healthcare professionals to leave this country in droves. And it, it's, it's quite a sad thing because they're very difficult to replace. Um, if one had to look at figures, for instance, last year, we had 30 psychiatrists leaving the country. Now it sounds like our oh, 30 psychiatrists, you know, it's not a big problem. It's 5% of the psychiatrists in the country, 30 psychiatrists. Wow. So we had 5% of the country's psychiatrists immigrating last year. So, so you know, those are the kind of figures that, that, that are quite scary if you look at them. And, you know, we've had the Minister of Health at some stage saying, but, you know, then they must immigrate because... Um, you know, uh, why are they immigrating to the UK where they've got an NHS system that, that is doing exactly what we want NHI to do, you know? And it's like, well, when you get to the UK, you know exactly what you're getting paid. You get know when you're getting paid, you know who's paying you and you know what's expected of you from a treatment point of view. So you've got certainty, you know? And if you add to that, the sort of socioeconomic certainty that you get by going there, suddenly it, it, it's quite appealing. Whereas locally, you know, we, we're trying to implement a policy that we still haven't shown us how we can afford it. And frankly, we can't afford it, but we, we're not willing to admit that because it's a very nice political tool. Every election time, you know, there's a bit of an uptick in NHI rhetoric because it's what the voters want to hear. So, so you find that, you know, we've got this dogmatic approach to, to NHI policy you know, because for the sake of it, and, and practicality has gone out the door a, a long time ago, you know, and, and we need to make a policy shift in healthcare from saying, how are we going to implement NHI to how are we going to achieve universal health coverage? Because the whole NHI concept of a single payer tax funded model is simply not going to work. Mm. But if you say, listen, let's get universal health coverage, how do we get 
public patients to access private healthcare services. If you start having that conversation, private healthcare professionals will get on board very, very quickly by saying, listen, I'm going to donate some of my time. I don't need to get paid for it. An hour a day, I'll see state patients. You organize a way to get them to me. I'll see them. I'll treat them free of charge. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you'll get to that point. And people will be willing to do that, private healthcare practitioners, but we're not having those conversations. We're having a conversation about how do we need make NHI happen. And as, as much as those opponents of NHI are saying, it's not going to achieve universal health coverage. Government comes and goes around and says, but, uh, or they say, listen, we don't want NHI. Then government says, oh, but you're against universal health coverage. Mm. It's not. That's one model of achieving it, you know, but that's not, uh, you know, people are not opposed to universal health coverage. They're opposed to this particular model because it doesn't make any sense in the South African setup. Mm. But we're not willing to make that mind shift to say, right, so what does make sense? What can we practically achieve uh, that is not going to cost us an arm and a leg. Um, you know, how do we make that work? But we're not having those conversations, unfortunately. And and the uncertainty around that is making healthcare professionals very, very skittish. Mm. So, you know, it just takes one kind of botched hijacking or somebody breaking into your car or something. And that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And then people are saying, listen, I don't know what my job future is looking like. Now I've been a, a, subjected to crime. I don't think I'm I'm in the mood for this anymore, you know. And 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 our healthcare professionals are, are very well trained here. You know, we've we've got a very good training system going, and they the everybody, Canada, UK, US, you know, all of those countries gratefully accept the South African healthcare professionals because we're very well trained. Mm. Um, so it's it's a sad state of affairs, you know, and I think it's that ideological approach to policy that is that is is so problem causing in South Africa. All right. All right. So in conclusion, what I can then draw draw from this entire conversation is economic uncertainty, uh, socio uncertainty, and then high crime rates, basically. The, the lack of security is what causes, you know, people to immigrate. Um, so do you have any, any closing thoughts on this? Um, <clears throat> well... I do have a bit of a, maybe a tricky question if you has time for one more question, but taking into account everything we've discussed, right? The argument maybe against immigration, um, if SA collapses, which let's be frank, it seems like it's going to, <laughs> mm-hmm. then those who are rich enough to be villainized, right? So those who, still pay tax, etc. They're basically non-grantees and non-BE um, elites. Um, basically, they will become the targets. So if you have this max ex- exodus from South Africa, you sort of leaving behind a whole swath of people. And I've heard a counter argument against immigration, which basically says that we have a duty to stay to basically prolong what seems to be inevitable to try to stave it off, give everybody a chance to try and get out, or maybe even everybody stays and, I don't know, we politicize the 18 million people that didn't vote in the last election that could, you know, certain solutions like that. I was wondering, does that, does that cross your mind at all? Does, does that weigh on you? Look, yeah, it, it is unfortunate because, you know, uh, 
I really uh, feel bad for the people that have to that are staying behind and 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 have that view to an extent. And you know what's interesting is ten years ago when people um, told other people, "Listen, I'm emigrating." You know, people were like saying, "Oh, but you're going to miss the sunshine and the braying and you know your family and that." Nowadays, I haven't had anybody saying that to me. Everybody said, "We understand." You know, so so I think there's a definite kind of shift in people people starting to kind of realize that, you know, we are in a bit of trouble here. And yes, there, there is a viewpoint that, you know, if, if we stay behind, we can, we can fix things. But, you know, my concern is that competence does not thrive in South Africa, you know, unless you've got some radical, radical political changes to stop cater deployment. You know, if you start in deploying people because they're competent to do a job instead of that, they're a loyal party member, you know, if you can take care of the corruption, if you can, if you can, you know, just get things moving along, you know, I mean, if you look at the, the kind of municipalities where private citizens have taken over sort of the water supply uh, situation and things like that in, in the Northwest, where they, they fixed the, the water supply within four days of taking it over when the municipality have failed for 12 months, because the, the municipal councillors uh, were getting kickbacks for for the renting of water, the water trucks that were coming to supply the communities. You know, so so if we if we genuinely had a situation where the civil service started caring about the services that they delivered, and where where politicians started making decisions based on what is right for the citizens, and and not having a, a kind of a, a different you know doing something because they they see a way for themselves to make money out of it. If, if we had that sort of situation going where competent people could be employed to do the work, you know, and could genuinely change things, I, you know, I think I would have considered staying. But unfortunately, at this stage, it, it doesn't look like we're there and it doesn't look like we're going to get there mm. anytime soon. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, so I'm, I'm a little, perhaps I'm just very pessimistic, you know, but, but you know, I don't see 15 years from now that, that things are going to be the same as they are now. And I, I don't think they're going to be better as they are now. Um, you know, and, and for me, I'm, I'm now making the choice to say, listen, I'm now going to look after myself. Um, it, it, and, and perhaps it's that sense of community that's, that's not there. Uh, but, you know, I don't feel like uh, the community is necessarily looking after me as, as, as a person. And, you know, I'm going to look after myself now. So, it's it's an unfortunate situation, you know, and and I, I'm afraid that there's a lot of people that that feel like that um, at the moment because it it's almost a sense of hopelessness, you know. It's mm -hmm. people are really trying, you know. You've got people trying hard to try and change things, and it's it's simply not making the difference that they want to make. So so I think Adrian Gore is a, is an example of a very positive person in South Africa that that's trying quite hard to make a difference. Um, you know, and, and as much as, you know, there, there's one of him, there's 10 guys that are trying equally as hard and not managing to make a difference, you know. And, and the question is how much perseverance you have in the long run to carry on trying to make a difference, you know. And, and in the meantime, you get beaten down by, by policy. You get beaten down by, by a lot of different things. And eventually, you know, if, if, if you don't have a raving success with whatever you're trying, it, it really becomes difficult, you know. So, um I think that's that's the problem, uh, and 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 you know you get that that community that's trying gets smaller and smaller, you know, and and they need to work harder and harder at trying, um, which which is then equally equally more tiring for them. So, um, 
yes, it, it does create a bit of a, a difficulty, I think. Um, and, and I don't know what the solution is. Um, you know, I think there, there needs to be some radical changes in order for us to get to a point where, where people can can look at it and say, listen, I'm going to try to make a difference because it actually it's actually possible to make a difference. And I'm, I'm not sure that we, we're at that point of things, unfortunately. Hmm. I think on, on that note, uh, our sponsor for, for tonight's uh, interview should probably be the ANC's NHI policy. <laughs> um, I, think, yeah. I think the ANC policy as a whole should be the sponsor for all, for all immigrants. Uh, yeah, precisely. Um, but on, on that somber note and on that very insightful uh, end to, to this interview, I just want to thank you again, Yuan, for shedding some light and uh, actually showing us, because I think there's a lot of people that didn't quite understand the reasons behind why people would immigrate. Um, years back, for example, I would probably have been one of those people. Right? I would see people leave the country and I would be like, but why? You're a coward, you're running away. It's only years later that I started to look at, South, at the situation of South Africa and I, and I started to think, maybe, maybe there's more to it than just my opinion of it. And I think your interview and the way that you answer our questions certainly highlights a lot of the things that we've been thinking about. And um, let's just try and keep the radical changes away from the ANC. Because right <laughs> It, it'll probably be the acceleration of expropriation, NHI, mm. and the increase of the wage bill, despite what they say in the news. Mm. Uh, yeah. Again, thank you very or much. Per, or perhaps having the EFF doing the radical change. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's kind of the radical change we don't need. Yeah. <laughs> but, mm. you know, I, I think in, in closing from my side, you know, I, I think it's important uh, for people to realize that, that when people immigrate, you know, it it's a massively tough choice. You know, it's not just something that you wake up in the morning and decide, right, you know, I'm now, I'm now fed up and I'm going to go, you know, there, there's a lot of processes that lead up to it. It's incredibly hard. You are leaving behind your entire life. You're leaving behind your family. Uh, you know, you're going into the unknown and, and you really, you have to, you know, it, it does speak of people being desperate for a better situation almost mm -hmm. that you're willing to give up a, a, what you have in certainty at the moment. Yeah. As, as much as you know you can have certainty is that that you're giving that up for an uncertain future but a future that you believe is a positive future mm. um, you know but it, but it, it's tough you know you, you leave behind a lot of things you you know you you basically have to become a, a citizen of a different country you, you your normal culture you have you've got to got to kind of put that on ice and, and adopt a new culture if you want to fit in otherwise also you know you, you start picking up problems um, you know, so I think it's a it's a very hard choice that people make. Um, you know, and and I think one must realize that, um, you know, anybody that immigrates, it it takes a lot of sleepless nights to get to that point, and and a lot of, um, you know, tying off loose ends and and you know making it's a radical life change that you that you make. You know, and and I think one has to have a bit of empathy. Um, if if somebody feels that you need to do all of that to to make a better future for yourself and your children, um, mm. and it's yeah, and and that is what it is. You know, I, I don't think it's a question of of you know. I know in the late 90s there was a lot of people that you know went for a gap year. They went to the UK and they go went to have a job, 
and and they came back at this stage when people are, are leaving you know it, it's quite a serious thing and it's it's quite a permanent thing most of the time now and and you know i, I think one a, a lot of people like i've heard now is that they say look they understand you know and and it's kind of sad that that so many people are saying listen they understand why you are leaving the country you were born in and living in your whole life um, for something else, you know, it, it says something about society on our side if, if people start saying that and no longer trying to convince you to stay because they kind of realize deep down that probably you're making the, the smart choice. Um, so, but, you know, it's tough. It's not, it's not an easy thing. Um, and, and, yeah, that's kind of my closing thought is, is you know, just to, uh, and, and I mean, I, I, on my side, you know, I've got sympathy for everybody staying behind, you know, because I'm, I'm leaving behind my parents, but my brother and sister, you know, they're staying behind, um, you know, and, and they're not getting out of, out of here, you know, so, so their lives are not necessarily going to improve like mine might on that side. Um, and, you know, I, I feel sorry about that, but it's beyond my control, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's that's something that that we've realized as the years went on, and we actually started to weigh these questions. Uh, so, have any closing thoughts on on your side? Uh, yeah, just to say that uh, I really enjoyed the conversation, and um, you know, I I think in in my darker moments, I, I definitely have this uh, sense of apathy and desperation, which is I think something that that this conversation rather reignited for me and I'm sort of wondering how much is that ticket to Australia? <laughs> <laughs> Look, but perhaps in your case, you might want to consider something like, you know, maybe Malta or, or Ibiza or something like that. You know, I think, I think something, Malta. something of a little bit more personal freedom might be the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I definitely don't want to end up in Victoria or something. <laughs> Oh, guys, yeah. uh, thank you again so much. Uh, boys and girls, you've been listening to Begging the Question, and our guest once again is Dr. Johan Saarfontein. I will drop his social links in the secret descriptions down below. Uh, please subscribe and share our uh, podcast. And again, join us for the next one. Cheers. <laughs>